I am so honored to introduce our moderator for tonight, Ms. Catherine Crino. Catherine Crino is a senior news writer at the Arizona Republic, where she writes about the Arizona Common Core Standards and Mesa Public Schools, Arizona's largest school district. She has been a newspaper reporter and editor for more than 30 years, and in that time, she has won more than 70 awards for news, business, and feature writing. But her favorite topic is K-12 education. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Catherine Crino. Hi, everyone. I'm honored to be here, and I'm very excited to introduce our three very interesting speakers um, who are experts in why Arizona is failing third graders. Our, um, on my immediate um, left is Frank Serafini, Dr. Frank Serafini. He's an author, illustrator, photographer, musician, and an associate professor of literacy, education, and children's literature at ASU. In addition, he was an elementary school teacher and literary specialist for 12 years in Phoenix, Phoenix Public Schools. Um, next is Daniela Robles. Daniela is an instructional coach at Griffin Elementary School in the Balls School District. She's been an educator for 17 years, spanning the classroom, intervention, and instructional coaching. Currently, she serves on the board of directors for the Arizona K-12 Center, blogs for Stories for School Arizona, and is a member of the Faces of Arizona Education Associated Group. Finally, we have Tim Valencia. Tim is the City of Phoenix's Youth and Education Program Manager. He has worked for the city in a variety of youth and education positions since 1994. Most recently, he served as the manager for, early, for the Early Head Start program, which focuses on early childhood education. So I am going to start with Frank and um, just to kind of explain the root of the problem, um, the state estimates that 1,500 Arizona third graders who are not special education students and not English language learners, they need no extra help, they should need no extra help, are going to be held back this year because they can't read. So what do you see as the root of the issue for these third graders who have not learned to read yet? Um, the root of the issue for why they can't read or why they're going to be held back. Um, why don't you uh, address well, one and then the other? <laughs> they're going to be held back because we have a law that's going to hold them back, is what I understand. Um, why they can't learn to read is probably as varied as the number of people who, can't learn to, who haven't learned to read. And I think that we have um, lots of issues in learning to read, and one of the big issues is how we define being able to read, and we're defining it primarily by... Um, a test in this case. And so um, what we probably have is a group of children who are unable to pass a test to a certain degree being held back. And what they can do with reading would require more assessments and understanding, I think. Okay. Well, Daniela, you work on a daily basis with the teachers who teach these students. So what I first wanted to find out from you is is there enough money going to solve the problem? Um, a year ago, our governor, Jan Brewer, um, made sure that $40 million was allocated to all the school districts in the state. That's like 130 some per kid 
specifically for third grade reading programs or up to third grade reading programs. I'm wondering if you think this is enough and um, are, are you doing things with the money? So that has quite a few facets right. <laughs> of that question. Uh, let me start with, so let's just think about when the appropriations actually came to be. So those students were in second grade and what we know is that when we're thinking of literacy and when we're talking about literacy, it starts far before second grade. Um, so is there enough money? I would say have we really looked at if we have a goal, an aspiration to say all third graders will be reading at grade level, what will that mean? That's another conversation. But have we really said if that's our goal, how have we task analyzed to say it starts before third grade, what needs to happen in second grade, what needs to happen in first grade, kindergarten, and preschool? and early care. So that's, that's part of it. That's the start. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tim, I'm going to ask you a similar question to the one I asked Frank about kind of the, the root of the issue. And since you're an early childhood expert, I'm, I'm wondering if some of it is that just kids aren't being exposed to books at a really early age, like they were maybe generations before. Well, I, I think the state's investment in early childhood education, we've highly relied on uh, the feds. And so what Head Start has done is, is really a drop in the bucket to what we, the community really needs. Um, we don't uh, stress the importance of the early years from zero to four. That transition from uh, pre-K to K and that discussion that needs to happen with the parent, um, that individual that's advocating for that child and the, and the kindergarten teacher. So there's, we're failing based on a lot of issues when it comes to the zero to four. I think um, almost 70% of our uh, population of three and four year olds are not in any type of structured classroom activity in Arizona. That's huge. That's and huge. that pre-K, that zero to four is huge when it comes to um, that developmental uh, and learning process for that, those children. Okay. And that parent engagement too is, yeah. is key. Jump in. I think that's I, absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. I also think, you know, my research on looking at um, parents reading with children has been um, supported for years that when children are read to, have books in the home and have time, they, they do better. Um, I also found that my research now and the research I've been reading would include not only reading to children but talking with children. And I would probably go over to say that the talking with children is as important, if not more important, um, than the book itself. The, the book needs to be there. We want them to be reading books. We want them to understand what books do and how they work and, and develop all that type of story literacy before they come to school and we want them to be read um, you know thousands of stories but it's not just simply reading aloud a book we can't just simply take the book and put it on tape and put a kid in, in a closet and have the same effect it's it's the it's the discussion and that high level of discussion that goes along with the story that is supporting oral language development and reading development and uh, we want to have more of this available um, to all children of Arizona as soon as possible if you um, think it's crucial that kids just learn to love to read when they're really little and then that gives them the passion to, to develop the skills or maybe not. Well I think the piece that's really been discussed here is just a student's language experience and those language experiences whether it is you know an oral story that's being told and they can retell that with their parents whether it is actual text um, in front of them 
it all speaks to language experiences. And that's what really opens up a child's curiosity and motivation to, to look at the books that might be on the shelf and want to grab and open and see what might be inside. And so I think it starts early that we encourage just that natural love of wanting to find out what might be between those two covers and what might happen you know for for some time we or I should say we've kind of we went through a time where we only wanted children to hold books that they could read which just simply isn't what happens when we begin to really develop a love and a motivation to read? There needs to be the aspirational books there. Absolutely. Uh, and we also, I mean, let's not also forget the importance of librarians in all of our schools that really possess a whole world of books for students. We're very fortunate in the Balt School District that we still have librarians. And that is a world that is new and inviting and supportive for all of our students to walk up the stairs and see our librarian and to know what book they're reading and if they don't have a book what interests them and to take them to shelves and shelves of books we have to think about just open the world for and, them. and i think i'd like to take it a step further it's also important to have family home libraries too many of our inner city youth do not have that opportunity to have a home library and so how do we involve our businesses, our community, to help these inner city youth begin their home library. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's correlated to low income communities versus the high end and what their home library looks like and the type of opportunities they have, there, there's a lot of disparity. And so how do Is we truly- Is it important truly, that they see their own parents reading and enjoy getting something out of a book? I think it's, it's role modeling. I think it's access. I think it's opportunity. Mm -hmm. There's communities within Phoenix that don't have a library close by. Um, and so if the school district doesn't open their libraries on Saturdays, for parent engagement pieces. That's a huge missed opportunity that we have. Okay, Frank, I, w I want to ask you the same question. Is it important that kids just learn to love to read the way they're describing either in a library or at home or? Yeah. or well, I, I think maybe that that's just when a you lay love something, you term. engage in it more. Mm -hmm. And the engagement is what is key, is engaging with text. And when we enjoy something, we tend to engage with it more. But we also engage with things when we feel successful at them. And when we don't feel successful at it, we tend to avoid it. And so we want students to not only engage, but to feel successful. I also want to make sure we extend this notion of book to include something more than book. Um, a good friend of mine who's a literacy professor's son learned to read by reading car manuals they picked up at dealers every Saturday morning. He hated storybooks. And he came to me feeling crushed as a literacy professor that his own son didn't want to read where the wild things are at the time. <laughs> and uh, that's how he came to learn to read. And, and walking around any parking lot with this young man would explain to you that he was a very avid reader because he knew every car in the lot and all the parts that he had read about in these texts. So it's not just books. It's nonfiction. It's brochure. It's, it's everything that we're reading. It's on Kindle. It's on phones. It's a lot of it's text, and it's engagement with text. And I think, you know, as we look at, towards Common Core, one of the things that I think is supportive of this is there, um, the implication that we need to be reading more nonfiction, especially in primary and intermediate grades, that um, for a lot of kids, the way into reading is not through story, it's through information. Maybe their science interests. Absolutely. Or something like Especially that. young boys. Okay.
Yes. You know, as I look around the room, Daniela, it's been a long time since most of us learned how to read. So I was hoping you could fill us in on some of the new strategies that you're using um, in your district and, you know, education experts believe in these days. Well, what are the techniques that you use with kids that aren't natural readers? Or I think the first piece is, um, and my colleagues here tonight have already spoken to this a little bit, but really speaking about the text is all around us. I think it starts with that. And then we, of course, go into language and how we have sounds and we can think about sounds and we can think, oh, well, sounds are really attached to letters. And if letters then signify sounds and I can put some letters together, I have a word. And if I have a word, then I have a sentence. And if I have a sentence, and so we start to build on that um, piece of language. If I can say new strategies, I think the piece, and I wouldn't say that this is new as much as it is something that we have really come back to, and that truly is constructing meaning from text, and that the purpose for reading is meaning. And so we are absolutely embracing that. Um, we are looking at that piece once again, and we're really talking about making meaning. Mm -hmm. So I would say, it's not something new, it's just something that we have fully embraced again. And I alluded to this a little earlier where we went through a time where we said, well, you really shouldn't have that book because I don't think it's at your reading level. And we are so far away from that now where we That's say great. just because a student is five years old and in kindergarten doesn't mean that they shouldn't be exposed to text that's complex, that you could actually have a very enriched conversation and discussion about the characters or informational text and what might be that idea and what might be those facts that are being presented. So I think it's not so much that we have something new, Okay. it's just that we've gone back to what reading truly and is. Is some of it employing this with every child and not letting anyone slip by um, because we have the testing, like it or not? So if we think about in, in that aspect, have we become much more skilled about identifying students who may be struggling in reading? Absolutely, but we have been much more broad now in saying, or specific, I should say. We used to say, oh, well, so-and-so isn't reading. They're really struggling. They must just need more phonics. Um, and so we are now much more aware of trying to diagnose why a student isn't reading. And is it, is it really phonics? Is it fluency? Is it really comprehension? What are the barriers? So we've become much more skilled in that aspect. Okay. And for these 1,500 kids, um, what, what are some of their key... Well, let me move on to your question. We'll get back to that. Sure. I, think this I, is... I teach children's literature and I have a PhD. Everything's okay. below my level. <laughs> <laughs> but I still read every day. Every one of those books um, is below my reading level, but I still read them. It's amazing. I, I love children's books, too. Um, so I think this is going to be your issue. Um, hmm. Does holding kids back help them or hurt them? You know, there's, there's been a, a lot of, a lot of fear of um, stig stigmatizing kids, and so there's been social promotion. Supposedly, a recent study in Florida that state officials keep pointing to has said, no, the kids that were held back now are doing better than the kids that weren't. Tell us your, yeah. your view of this. 
I haven't read the Florida report. I know a lot of things that happened there. I would say overall, um, the research shows that holding children back doesn't have a great um, track record in general. Um, it increased, it, it, and they're mostly unintended consequences. I, I think that the intentions are, are, are noble, that we don't want children who don't do well to continually be passed on, and I certainly understand that. But um, when we do hold children back, especially past third grade, the, uh, the, the chances of dropping out sooner, the chances of not being successful are really um, kind of hard to refute some of the work on that. Um, it seems like one of the challenges we don't know is that whether the child would have done well if they weren't held back. We'll never know that. Um, so when they're saying they're doing well down the road, is it because they had a better teacher the next year or was it because they were held back? We don't know. And so it's interesting. But I'd say in general, a lot of the research on retention has not been favorable for a lot of kids, especially uh, minority and second language learners. Mm -hmm. Tim, and what's your perspective what on that? Yeah. Um, I, I truly believe it's the strategy. Um, I, I really believe if we hold somebody back in the same type of learning environment, will they succeed? Um, I think if we shift to more personalized learning to kind of get them up to speed, I think it's the way we address when we, hold, when we hold them back versus the strategy and the engagement and the personalized learning that may need to occur based on clearly identifying that student's needs. Um, I, 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 I have read the, you know, very um, controversial the issue about holding back versus not, but I think we're forgetting it's the intervention and the way we are teaching versus just holding it back right in the same type of classroom, sure. same type of learning environment and not changing anything. That's the issue. Okay. Daniela, I know you don't set state policy, but I'm going to put you on the spot anyway. <laughs> okay. Would, do you think a program that led the, fourth, the third graders pass to fourth grade but just gave them remediation in third grade reading um, might be preferable to the setup we have now where they're just going to fail? Well, you've put me in charge of state policy yeah. now, so I'm going to um, be pretty bold and say anytime we're looking at one measure to define whether a student is proficient or not proficient, that's an issue. So if I'm in charge of state policy, first of all, we're gonna bring multiple measures into this, and multiple measures would mean more than a multiple choice assessment. So that would be the first piece. Um, as far as remediation, I look at, again, going back to, if our goal is third grade reading, what do we need to do before third grade versus what do we do when they get to that point and they're already showing signs of struggling. So I would look at more prevention than remediation. Okay. Tim, uh, you're the early childhood expert. What age should kids start learning the technique of reading? Is it It starts with the parents at birth while the individual is pregnant. I really believe that it's about role modeling and then as soon as they're born, um, you know, we had an early childhood, uh, early childhood um, program for zero to three, zero to two, and then one for three and four year olds, which is a structured classroom. And so just the working with a parent and, you know, fine motor skills and introducing books, that is so important. And I truly believe the investment in the zero to four would take care of third graders not reading. Okay. If we truly invested in the zero to four age group, with structured learning, structured programs, in-home programs, classroom programs, um, I th we would have a different 
you know, diverse state when it comes to third okay. grade reading. Frank, um, I want to ask you about all day kindergarten, though. We were having a little discussion about longer school days, Common Core, before we came out here. And, um, you know, kindergarten now is the new first grade. Kids do very, very <clears throat> academic things. There's hardly any playtime. Um, is this hard on some kids? And may, maybe it leads to burnout later on. Um, maybe they don't have that love of reading because it's all so structured. Yeah, I think this, those are challenges. I don't. That's his question. He, he's the right. childhood expert. Well, um, yeah, all day kindergarten but, but is. You're a, the storybook. I think expert. there's. A, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of school districts in our state who take money from other places to fund all day kindergarten because it's not funded well here. And so I think school districts see a value for it. I think parents see a value for it beyond simply um, time from daycare. I think that um, time spent around children and books in a well-structured kindergarten classroom can be incredibly effective, having worked with so many amazing kindergarten teachers in my life. I, I, I don't think things can start too early, but I think it's what we're starting with that is the question. What does it mean? Um, Sitting down and doing drill and kill worksheets for three hours is not better if we start early. We could eliminate it and probably do better. But mm -hmm. um, I also want to speak to her Go point, ahead. this last point that came sure. across. We keep throwing around this idea that third graders are not reading, and that's the reason for this. But we, that's not what this is about. Um, reading is much more difficult to define whether a child's reading or not than simply saying reading yes or no. It's clear that this is uh, whether a child is passing a test on a single day. And we can't forget that these are two separate issues, that they're being held back because of their score on a test, not because of what they're doing with reading. Now, this is one measure of reading. And, and I'm sure that the intentions are very noble behind this piece. I, I'd like to think that they are. But um, these are huge decisions in a child's life made on what they do on a standardized test on one day. Um, I'd like to think that we bring in bigger amounts of evidence for making these kinds of decisions for the children in Arizona. And I'll ask a, can I ask a question on that? Absolutely. So I, I know we're concentrating on this one test, but what about some of the other assessments and data that's come from NAEP, sure. which shows we're doing far worse? Oh, I'm not saying that we're, I'm not saying we're not doing well, and, and I think the testing is, is an indicator of how schools are doing it. There, there's these pulse, we have NAEP, we have so many of them. The challenge is with the attachment of high stakes to a single entity, no matter what it is. You know as well as I do that NAEP and these things are, are random sample. You're random, um, you're right. We're looking to get a pulse of things. And I, I think that we, are, we have challenges in Arizona schools, and I'm not saying that. But attaching such high stakes to a single measure, I think, has, has not proven successful in a lot of places. I had a teacher describe to me um, a student that she saw get out of the car crying on Ames Day, sure. and he'd had some kind of problem at home, uh, mother drove away very quickly, and she just knew he was not going to do well on the test that day, even though he was a pretty good student. So it sounds like that's what you're talking about. Daniela, what, what's the answer to that? Because as I understand it, there's really no appeal process for the individual kid. Um, maybe no there should court. be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I don't think we know what the answer is right now. Um, I'm a firm, we've talked about unintended consequences, and I think, uh, unfortunately, we are doing, well, not unfortunately, but fortunately, I know schools across the state are committed and have been committed to student success. Um, so I, I would also say I don't think Arizona is failing 
third graders, I think we have work to do like every other state. Um, and every school district and teacher, I mean, goes to work every day and does this work to better the lives of every mm -hmm. child that they encounter. So I, I want to say that first. Um, so do I know the answer? No. Uh, do I know that we are doing everything to ensure that students are successful? And as much as we do not agree with the policy of one snapshot in time to determine what a student's trajectory may or may not be, mm -hmm. um, we will have to see. We will have to see what happens when the results come out. And we actually don't just have a number but we have names and faces attached to those numbers, uh, we will have to see. Okay. And, and I want to take that a step further. It's, it's really, you know, with working within the city of Phoenix, we offer programs during the out-of-school time and how do we truly align with the school. And I'm not saying like an extended school day what the city provides in after-school programs, but how we are an extension of the school day and offering uh, enrichment activities and tutoring. So it's not just a school's problem, it's a community problem. We need to involve and mobilize the community businesses, the work that Read on Arizona is doing with Terry Clark about mobilizing communities and bringing resources to the most needed communities. That's where we need to step up. That's, I think, where we're truly failing the state is that the community and the businesses are not stepping up. Do you sense that people just aren't really aware of the problem? There, there's other issues on their mind besides third grade readers, Tim? Yes, I believe. I mean, we hear businesses, um, I, I also worked for a short time in the economic development department and we constantly heard, you know, the talent is not here. It's not here. Um, I have to go elsewhere and pull talent. Well, businesses, let's invest in our education system here. Let's look at the education pipeline from pre-K to college and figure out where those leakages are and invest. And so I just think it's not on the minds, the reading and, and what the predictors are for later success for college access and completion. Okay, say you're just in the audience here. What, give people one suggestion for how they can get involved. Um, one step they can take to help third grade Well, I think um, within the community is really attaching yourself to Read on Arizona, Read on Phoenix, readonarizona.org um, or readonphoenix.org and look on how you can volunteer, um, how your company can be involved in holding literacy activities, not only for the community, but for their employees. They're all parents. And how do we extend that? And how do we really truly reach out um, there's a wealth of knowledge just going on either one of those sites really can give you an idea how businesses or communities can really be part of the solution. Okay, Daniela, tell us what the schools need. If someone is fascinated by your district and want, wants to help out, what, what could they do relating to this issue? Well, there's quite a few things. I would say the first piece, though, is, is to get involved. Um, to, to come to our school district, to come to our schools. We have four schools now. We used to have five. Uh, we have four now. Come to the schools. Volunteer, if possible. Read with a child. Talk with a child. I think it's, it, starts, it starts there. Come to our, our library and be a volunteer and see the look in a child's eyes when they see a book that just grabs them. Um, I think it starts there. 
What's the biggest title, most popular title at your school right now? Well, you know, I would, unfortunately... Just out of curiosity. I, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, what well, was I, it last year? <laughs> oh, no, we're even going farther back. Uh, let's see. I would say this year we have a new informational text series that's coming out about, or that's slowly trickling in as we um, acquire more and more funds to purchase all the books in the series. And that has been probably the hottest item. So. Really? So what's the subject? Oh, it, it ranges. ranges. We have reptiles. We have, I mean, you just, you name it. And the boys are involved, of course, but so are the girls. Yeah, and that's so great that's reality. That's important, too. Okay. Frank, what, same question. What, what are your suggestions for just <laughs> average folks who are well, appalled by this and want to help out? Um, you know, you can, we need to get involved and vote for people who support education. It's always a great idea. Um, I think one of the challenges, um, challenge for me is that w there's another unintended consequence of this stranglehold that standardized testing has on a lot of states, not just ours, and that is the narrowing of curriculum. That when we begin teaching only to the test, a lot of things fall away, and a lot of things that fall away are what make us well-rounded, interesting individuals. And I think that getting involved in trying to keep the arts and music and other parts of the curriculum involved at the school keeps more kids in school. There's a lot of kids who go just for some of those things. Um, that's the first. The second one is you, you, you have to um, support teachers. Um, I'm a teacher. I just happen to work at the university now. Um, I've been a teacher for a long time. And teachers do amazing work, poorly paid and overworked. And we all know that when we know one of them, but we have to know that as a community. And that, um, and I don't mean just raising pay, I mean raising autonomy, professional judgment, respect for teachers. Um, we really need to do a better job of supporting the teachers in the classroom. Um, what are some steps people can take as individuals to do that? Oh, okay. Voting. Um, at, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, that was a, right. a sidebar. Sure. Was yesterday, it, so. it is. Got and, a ways. You know, for us, at, at, at speaking from, at the university, one of the things we're trying to do is, is to increase and expand the alliances we have with school districts, Department of Ed, community groups. We have to, you know, Tim's work trying to get communities involved. We have to strengthen the alliances between these different stakeholders in the education community. We can't see ourselves that we create teachers. When they're done, they're perfect. They go to school district and just off they go. We know that's not true. And we have to be sure that we're, we're strengthening those alliances through ITJZ and a lot of programs, trying to reach out and have more discussions with mm -hmm. school districts so that we understand their challenges they and they understand some of the things we know about reading and literacy. That certainly is, is, is huge. The second one for me is, um, is questioning the curriculum, is going in and talking, being there on curriculum nights, being involved with the adoption of textbooks, being involved with the things that are going on in the school. Um, one of the kind of elephants in the room that doesn't get mentioned is teachers in many districts have very little autonomy to teach the way they know best. And we don't have any representatives of a lot of commercial publishers being their feet held over the fire. Uh, we've been, you know, since 2001, a lot of commercial program has been involved in education. A lot of money has been spent on it. The reading first numbers would suggest that the scores have basically flatlined since this was enacted. And we are still hearing about the problems at the university and the problems with teachers, but here's this thing in the room that no one's asking about. So I'd like to see more of that 
um, as part of the conversation as well. Yeah, my, my sense is um, we don't really know what goes on in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Teachers shut the door and we know at report card time or test score time, but the yeah. process of teaching is mysterious to a lot of us. So that's interesting. Well, um, kind of to, to wrap up, I wanted to give each of you a chance to just talk about what was on your mind um, the minute that you got the invitation to, uh, to be part of this program. So, um, I'll, I'll <laughs> well, I was a little worried when I first and, saw the topic. I think we talked yeah, about this. But, you know, I'm sure that you had a lot of things percolating, so, and I'm sure I haven't thought to ask, so just share them with us. I, I was a little worried. I think I asked around, okay, you know, who's this organization? I knew they were attached to ASU, and then I, I saw the title, and I was a little leery, um, because I think we're doing amazing work. And one thing that we don't do in Arizona is all the great work that's happening in school districts and communities, we don't tend to focus. And um, I think, as a whole, the media could do a better job in highlighting some great things that are happening in BALTS, um, some of the great work that Dr. Smith is doing. Um, There's just so many great examples. And, I, and that's what I was really worried, just because of the topic and why we're failing. Um, that was what was first on my mind. But we're failing because I think we're not, we're not working as a community to address this. It's not a school issue. It's not a parent issue. It's not a business issue. It's all of our issues. We all need to come together and strategize on how we're going to you know, really, truly move that needle when it comes to, to reading. Okay, Daniela, what's your message for us? So what's my message? Yeah. I would say, and I think we've accomplished um, some of this tonight, is to really begin to say it's not simply third graders not showing proficiency on one test. It is so much more than that. And if we're really going to look at what we want to accomplish in this state, then we really need to think about what we are prioritizing um, around funding, around effort, and around community. So I would say, just to be able to say, it's not just one thing. And I think, again, it's noble to say, if we could just do, kind of have this stopgap measure, all problems will be solved. And it, that, it's just not that simple. A, because we're dealing with students. So. Mm -hmm. When I first saw it, I, I sent a note to my dean and said, are you sure you want me there? That was my first. I did too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Then I started looking at the question, and as a professor, I've learned if you can't really answer the question well, ask a different question. And whether we're failing um, uh, third graders, uh, we are also um, being successful with 96%, because the 4% are the ones that we're, if this is the number, and we're even going by this test, there's still 96% that did well and passed, right? Wasn't that the number for fourth, third grade? 4% may be held back. And, these numbers, whatever, you know, there's a whole bunch of students who are doing very well. And um, unfortunately, they also didn't have a lot of challenges doing well. Where are the challenges? Well, um, poverty is directly linked to success, and we haven't addressed that issue. Um, second language is direct to success on tests. We haven't addressed that issue. Um, teacher support, funding, these things are all issues part of it. For me, we have to, I, I believe, reinvestigate the monies spent on things like testing and program that be better spent in classrooms with teachers, children, and books. And I, I just want to clarify something. Yes, those are the individuals that may be held back, but we have 20,000 students in Arizona that are not reading proficiently. 
they're not going to be held back because they're kind of falling in uh, that approaching area, but not fall far below. So I, we do have a much bigger issue, and I know we don't want to take that snapshot of that assessment, but we do have a major problem. These individuals are going to be passing still being, uh, not being proficient uh, readers, and so that's the, also another issue we should be addressing um, are those that are approaching and the intervention and how we're going to move them up to actually meeting that stand, those standards. So. I was in a school recently that had um, a big wall in kind of the teacher's study area and every child's name was on a post-it and some were at the top and a few were at the bottom but I was looking at that exact same thing there were so many just almost at the almost bottom there. and you wonder you know how how well they're going to be um, doing you know as things go along. Do we want to have time for questions? Yes, we've got lots of time for questions. Uh, there are two of us going around. Jennifer's on the other side. I'm over here. If you have a question, please raise your hand. We'll come to you. And please say your first and last name before your question. This is being recorded. This goes up on our website first thing tomorrow morning. You can share that with friends, family, colleagues, students that could not be here tonight. And this will also be broadcast at some point on ASU TV if there are any students in, in the crowd that will uh, be able to watch that. So we've got our first question right over here. First question. Uh, my name's Dave LeBeau. 15 years ago, my youngest son uh, got tested in his school and tested for special education reading and for honors reading. Now, we knew the honors teacher very well because I had three older boys that had been in that class, and he came to my wife and says, well, I'm not going to take this kid. You know, he needs to learn to read. What we discovered was that he knew all the big words, but none of the little words. So he'd make them up, so it didn't make any sense. And as soon as we started talking to people, they said, well, it's because the technique that we use in this school to teach him to read doesn't work for the, that problem that he's got in his brain. If he uses other technique, he'll do fine. But there really wasn't a resource at the school to do that. And so we hired a tutor, and the kid moved three grades up in one year. And I worry about how many other kids that have similar kinds of problems that somebody can easily identify it, but, don't, but doesn't really have the capacity to do anything about it except tell the parents and maybe they'll get lucky. I'd be interested in how you, you know, how the schools are dealing with that today, if any better. Daniela? Well, I would say, uh, just to kind of speak to you, I think we do a much better job of looking and attending to students who are starting to show some signs of maybe not being successful readers. Um, and at any time when the classroom teacher feels as though they need support, and as an instructional coach, as if I cannot help identify those issues as well, then we do have, and pretty much every school has a team of teachers that come together where we can really look at that child and say, okay, so let's look at all the pieces, the multiple measures of data that we have. What are we seeing? What's working? What's not working? And then we also have special education professionals that can help us identify even more. So we do, we do have systems in place to try to catch students and meet them where they need to be. And, and I would say with my son, he was part of that successful strategy because in actually in second grade, we learned um, his retention uh, comprehension wasn't there. And so he was being pulled out you know, for three years and now he's doing great, he's an AP. He just needed that extra intervention. Um, and so I, I, I can attest that that strategy does work personally. Question over here on your left. Thank you. Um, my name is Carrie Kelly. Uh, 
personalized learning was mentioned various times throughout the conversation, and especially in the context of personalized learning and reading proficiency, what do you think the place of technology is in the third grade classroom? You go ahead. <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't replace a quality teacher, but can certainly enhance instruction, I think, you know. I mean, when we talk about technology, it depends on whether you mean putting a kid in front of a computer for five hours to do AR quizzes or using the Kindle to help them read story. There's a, lot of, there's a big difference there. Um, I, I, I work with technology in all my classes as much as possible and enhances a lot of my instruction at the university level and would do the same at the uh, elementary level. I think it's, it's a kind of a broad term, but I, I think that there are some. Um, we, we want children to have the attention at the time they need it for what they're trying to do. And certainly smaller class sizes and other things will help us do that. But it's, um, it's very difficult. I have some teachers in my, one of my classes right now that are teaching first grade with 36 students in there. Is there a lot of personalized learning going on in that classroom? Probably not. And that's certainly one of the challenges too. And I, I really, you know, technology is really a strategy and not an absolute. Or what I mean is, you know, every student has a different way of learning. And so, you know, some students may physically need that book and may be more, um, you know, more willing to read if it's on a Kindle. But just having that ability and that option for students, I think, is critical. Sure. Question over here. Hi. My name is Carrie Brown, and I'm a parent. And my son attends our, um, well, he attended our local Title I school in our neighborhood when he was in kindergarten. And I had a big concern um, because, well, he tended to be bored because at home he had a lot, a rich literary environment, as you referred to. Um, a lot of the kids didn't. My concern was not so much for my son, but I felt like the children in that classroom were not getting. Um, he, they weren't getting what he got, they were getting drills that you referred to. And um, I think some of the drills were good and important, but I always joked with the teacher, what we need is we need a series of grandparents sitting in the corner so that the kids can go and sit with those grandparents and read, because they weren't getting that. So <laughs> I just was wondering. Um, I've never curled up on the beach with a good phonics workbook. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know that for sure. I, I've never finished a, finished a book and ran to the garage to build a diorama either. And so, you know, a, 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 a famous person named Frank Smith years ago said, sometimes when kids are bored and confused, it's because what we're doing to them is boring and confusing. And we have to keep that in mind sometimes. And maybe there are some times where some sort of direct instructional uh, approach is very important to help them understand something. Um, we certainly uh, want to be sure it doesn't take over the time spent with literature. And so classroom libraries, I couldn't agree with Tim more than that. Um, some of the work I've been doing now would suggest that even the classroom library may be too far. I'm thinking about where you pick up books, like dentist's office and airplanes. Oh, absolutely. It's got to be that close. That people won't even get up at the dentist's office if the magazines are on the other end of the room. And so how do we have students have to get to the school library when it's time to read something? And so we have to have books and things to read right there. So you, all you have to do is reach over and take it out of the back of the pocket. That's, I, that's the kind of libraries I want to have in well, class. Is We're, this one a community involvement activity that people, sure. after this of is course. a, a low-income school, um, donate books? Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of, little easy readers? There's a lot of people who've been working you know, years ago through RIF and other programs trying to get books in the hands of children. Absolutely. Okay. 
We're even working board. with local physicians actually give a prescription to go to the library to check out a book, <laughs> which is great. done in the East Coast. So That's great. those are just some of the things Read on Phoenix and Read on Arizona is trying to do to mobilize community. Yeah. So. Question over here on your left. Um, tonight, oh, my name is Pam Ruprecht, and I'm the mother of a dyslexic. And because he was dyslexic, I got my doctorate at ASU and actually took a class from Frank. I also run a reading clinic now, and I see children of fairly high socioeconomic level, but I, my heart bleeds for those kids that are in Roosevelt School District. I give free reading screenings, and I have those mothers come in with their children, and they are just in tears because they cannot help their child because this state, and nowhere in my education was it covered, 20% of every classroom has dyslexics in it to some degree. So my question is, when will Arizona start joining the rest of the United States? There's only 12 that actually recognize it. When will we start training teachers to screen for it? When will we start training teachers to treat it in a multi-sensory way that is science-based, not a feel-good book on my lap that I can't read? 20% of kids will not respond to books in libraries when they can't read them. So that is a nice solution for some, but 20%, it will not be the answer. We need to get science involved. When will Arizona start doing this? Daniela, what about teaching dys dyslexic children? Well, and I, I'm just gonna go back to that whole, the piece that we talked about earlier where when we begin to identify students who are struggling, that we do have measures in place that begins with interventions in the reading lab and then support as well. But I do, I do absolutely understand where this mother's coming from. Any more comment? You have another question. Hi, my name is uh, Dave Wells, and my question is about the logistics of uh, failing and being held back. Uh, one of the frustrations I've had you know, as a parent was the students would take the AIMS in early April, and we wouldn't get the results until July. And I don't know when the teachers get it, but it always seemed, since it's a multiple choice test, and the reason that why you know, for, to save money, they ought to get the results a lot quicker. So, so I'm wondering, you know, on that level, we may have that this year. Then we're going to move to the park assessment, which is going to be online, which should mean the results should be available pretty much immediately. So does a kid fail in early April, and then you've got six weeks, and you're screwed uh, because you can't uh, do anything to help that kid in those six weeks because they've already failed the test. So I'm just wondering what the logistics of this actual implementation is going to actually look like. Are you there yet? or is I think that a lot of people <laughs> are asking. I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. Um, what I found as a journalist is I ask a lot of questions, like the question about is there an appeal if a kid's having a bad day and there aren't really a lot of clear answers, they're kind of building the airplane while they're flying it. Um, that's just an observation. Um, yeah. But what, you know, what, what about the lateness in the test results? Is that, is that a problem for teachers? Well, it's always a problem when we have high-stakes testing and we don't have immediate results. Um, we always look at it as we get the results and the students are already gone for that year and 
we can do what we can to analyze that data and try to identify trends and patterns related to specific standards or clusters right. of standards and what that what we did related to it the previous year and where that student is the next year. But of course that's difficult. High stakes testing, results and what do we do now? Mm -hmm. And well with the tenth grade aims, the kids have a few other tries to, um, you know, so they can graduate by 12th grade. Um, with third grade reading, it's just one try, apparently. Okay, Qu any Qu other questions? Question on your right. Gail Knight, I'm on the Ball School District Board. I appreciate Ms. Robles being here tonight because she can simply say a lot about the great things that are going on in the school district. I think it's important when we have these type of forms that we also talk about best practices and what's really working for children when it comes to reading. Um, I heard you mention about businesses and communities getting involved. And I think if there's one school district that could be a great example of getting the, the community and, and businesses involved is the Ball School Absolutely. District. Our um, foundation there is constantly raising money to bring more free books to the kids in the classroom. We have monthly reading to kids in the classroom and the, and the school board members are involved in that. So what can you say to us about those practices that are going on that we can all take back to our communities and to our districts and what have you to help to encourage and move along what's best for our kids in reading? I, I can answer somewhat of that. Uh, tomorrow we're actually having the Read on Arizona, Read on Phoenix Summit. Uh, business members and superintendents, we have 150 attendees coming tomorrow. And one of the activities is talking about some of those best practices and promising practices. Um, BALT has highlighted whether it's uh, raising a reader or reading detectives, some of the strategies out there that we want to actually expose the business community that this is what's working, here's where you can invest your money. And so we're, we're hoping to kind of start that with this summit, that's tomorrow. Um, we have someone from Harvard coming in, Barry Broom is talking about the important link between investing in early childhood literacy and the, again the dividends that it pays later on. Um, so we're trying to start that discussion now and share those promising practices. And BALT will be highlighted in one of those activities. Anything to add, Frank? Best practices? Um, the best practice is the one that helps the child at the moment they need the help. And I mean, the, this lady just described someone who needs different kind of help than what other classes do. And try to come up with these universal things that help all children become literate is kind of the search for the silver bullet that has never proved successful yet. Um, I, I know that there are things that have seemed to help most kids, you know, time with text, class in the room, quality teacher, some assessments that help uncover some of the challenges, but I would be um, um, kind of blatantly lying if I knew there were three things that would help everybody become, actually I'd have written that book. If I knew it. I think that's called personalized learning, right? <laughs> well, you know, it, it is, but it's also, there's a challenge of saying what works really well in this school with these children, this and teacher, with this knowledge base, can be just sort of generalized across all children, across all schools. And there's always a, there's always a risk in doing that, I think, sometimes. But I think there's a lot of things we, we've been doing and teachers have been doing that help children become literate. And, and parents have been doing and... Right. And I think having a superintendent, we talk about that flexibility and that professional development and that ability for teachers to be creative and not teach to a test, teach to a test, um, is really is what's needed is those creative superintendents that allow their administration to really take chances and see what works 
And I think, I, I will say, not because you're here, because <laughs> Dr. Smith has done an amazing job, but I think he's trying to, he's definitely figuring that out. We have time for just one more question, but before we move on to that, I want to thank everyone again for being here tonight. I want to thank all of the panelists for their time and effort in being here and joining us. It was a fantastic conversation. Also want to invite you all to a reception. We've got wine, beer, soft drinks. It's happy hour, guys, so please join us. The exit's in the back left. Um, and uh, also want to thank our co-presenter for tonight, the Arizona State University, Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. We couldn't do this without them. So thank you so much. And now our last question. Thank you. I think this is awesome. I'm also a parent of a dyslexic child. My name is Nora Schlesinger. I'm also a certified academic language therapist, which means I have specialized training for individuals with dyslexia and dysgraphia. It was over a three-year process. I am also in my PhD at Arizona State University in speech and hearing because I would really like to see this differentiated instruction that you're talking about carry over. But I'm wondering, what can we do to support our teachers at a university level become more diagnostic and prescriptive about the reading process? As Louisa Mote says, teaching reading is rocket science. It's not an easy, it's a difficult thing to be a reader and a much more difficult thing to teach reading. To teach. So what can we do for our, our teachers that are in training, our pre-service teachers? Daniela? I would say that first it's knowledge, and then it's really skill and application related to that. I would look at, I know how I learned to teach reading to students, and that was really through a, a separate program from my preparation at the university. Um, not that I didn't gain a tremendous amount from my preparation, but a lot of this does come from what you seek out, and I would just hope that we have less of that and that we can actually, it, it's a difficult piece. Um, so are you advocating for universities to really um, incorporate that in their block? I definitely. I, I don't feel that I was trained as when I stepped out the door as a teacher. I, I was a teacher. I'm also a reading specialist. Um, I am currently interning with um, Dr. Preach, and we are doing wonderful things. Her class is getting things that I never got. So I'm very happy to see that. Um, I would like to see that expand and continue in the teacher training program, not just at a master's level. That's I my, at the, what I'm, I'm in a, um, interning in a master's level. I'd like to see that start in an undergraduate. So our teachers are hitting the ground ready. Like you said, they, they're, they're understanding where those children came from, mm -hmm. and they're looking at them <coughs> diagnostically. We know the consequences of illiteracy. The repercussions in terms of incarceration are unbelievable. And there is a huge correlation, and I think we can do a lot to help our, our community and our society having literate individuals. Well, I think ASU is listening, so maybe uh, I would yeah, agree. I'd be remiss I if I didn't speak to this, of course. And I think that our undergraduate program, um, we have over 4,000 students now, and we're creating teachers. But I think that our program is, is top of the line, uh, both undergraduate. We have uh, tenure and tenure track faculty, along with clinical faculty and FAs teaching courses. I think that there's many voices involved in what we mean by teaching reading, and certainly Louisa Motes is one of those voices. I think that um, we are still remiss if we, don't, if we truly believe that a teacher is ready to just take over a classroom the minute they walk out of our 36-hour program. 
I think they are incredibly um, positioned to be excellent teachers. But it's going to take that alliance between district and university to continue their preparation. Engineers don't build buildings the week they come out of school. And teachers are put in classrooms. And we know that about 50% of them leave in the first three to five years. So there's something that has to be done to support them through training and additional work when they hit the classroom to be successful and stay in the program as well. And with that, thank you so much. Again, we'll see you at the reception. Let's give them a big round of applause.